We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Whoever saw a dead cavalryman? That was a common Civil War joke among the infantry on both sides. But cavalry service was no joke. For a regiment like the 5th Illinois Cavalry, the war meant disease, short rations, and brutal close-quarters combat with Confederate guerrillas and bushwhackers in Arkansas and Mississippi. Glamorous mounted charges with flashing sabers were few, but internal political struggles over who should command the regiment and what the purpose of the war ought to be were many. We'll learn more about the experiences of the men of this regiment when we talk today with Rhonda M. Cole, author of The Prairie Boys Go to War, the 5th Illinois Cavalry, 1861-1865, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a rainy Friday afternoon here in April 2013 from the campus of East Carolina University, the Brewster Building, home of the Department of History and Department of Sociology and Philosophy and Economics and Political Science and Problem Geography and uh, numerous others. It's a big building, <clears throat> but not speaking for any of those departments or for the university or anybody else at all, just for Civil War talk radio for myself. And likewise, a guest will surely speak only for her own self. Well, it's a 
rainy Friday. We're waiting here. I'm waiting anxiously for the rain to go away so that we can get the weekend off to a good start. Today is Pirate Fest here in Greenville, annual celebration of the pirate heritage of the area. It may seem odd to celebrate these seaborne looters, rapists, thugs, murderers, but at a distance they seem quaint and cuddly and we can have a, a festival for them. Um, a hundred years from now there will be the serial killers and carjackers festival somewhere, hopefully once those crimes have been eliminated. But as long as we still have them, they don't seem funny. So uh, that's what people are doing. More important, of course, people are playing uh, girls' high school soccer, and the J.H. Rose team is scheduled to play tonight if it does stop raining. Um, weeks ago, I said I would tell you the early scores of the season and never got around to it, but uh, the girls are doing well this year. My daughter's team is having a good season, a winning record, even within their very powerful conference. They've actually won a game this year. And uh, they're having lots of fun, so we hope it stays dry and they can play tonight. But weather will not stop our discussion of Civil War historical topics, not this week, uh, not next week, when Earl Muldering III will join us to talk about the Civil War in New Bedford, Massachusetts, the whaling community. And we'll learn how the war reached there. We've got uh, lots of other folks set up over the next few months. We're... Uh, some of them are, are tentative, and I don't want to spill any beans yet till we're sure about things, but we'll get those all online for you at the greatest of all possible websites, www.impedimentsofwar.org. That's where uh, Mark Gaffney keeps track of what we're doing here and what we have done, and you can go listen to past shows and sign up for new ones and uh, get ready to see what's going on. You can also donate to the show at uh, the PayPal button there, CivilWarTR at AOL.com is the address for the show. Uh, received a, a nice donation in a, uh, a very interesting message recently from a, a listener who uh, had himself written a book about a battalion, not that uh, fought in the Civil War, but that fought in the First World War, and he himself had later served in that uh, Marine Battalion, Second uh, uh, Battalion, Sixth Regiment. It uh, and it moved me to to go read the book. It's quite good. If this were World War One talk radio, we'd certainly uh, have him on. Uh, but it's an interesting book because it points out how uh, reading a book about a different war, about the War of eighteen twelve, War in Mexico. Spanish-American War, even First World War, one can still see the the identity, the traces of regimental uh, identity that the small units had, uh, which is something we're going to talk about today, and uh, which we will, in fact, get right to <clears throat> as we uh, visit with the author of the book called The Prairie Boys Go to War, the 5th Illinois Cavalry, 1861 uh, written by Rhonda M. Cole. Ms. Cole, are you there? I am, Jerry. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you today? Besides Good. the rain. <laughs> well, besides the rain, we're doing all right here. I hope uh, it's drier wherever you are. Yes, uh, we had that rain yesterday. Okay, wait, wait, where where are you right now? Where the, the uh, Jeffersonville, Indiana, across uh, the river from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, um, well, that... 
strikes a, uh, a painful note for me because I'm a Michigan man, a uh, uh, oh. graduate of the University of Michigan, and our team lost the national championship yeah. to Louisville. Uh, yeah, United. sorry. But, it but was, they're very uh, happy great. here, so. <laughs> well, and well, they should be. It was a great game, two great yeah. teams. It was uh, well played. The uh, uh, but Jeffersonville is uh, uh, a great nautical city, a great boat building town, uh, uh, which people don't expect, thinking of Indiana as the middle of the prairie. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, during the the mid eighteen hundreds, uh, steamboats. Uh, now they just build barges. Uh, what are, aren't there still some <coughs> boat, you know, uh, not yachts, but just motorboats uh, built there in Jeffersonville? I'm trying to think of what boat I, I'm familiar with that, that was built in Jeffersonville. Maybe it was uh, one of the small uh, uh, cruise ships that goes on the rivers and along the coast. Um, no, I don't think there's anything built here. Except, Nothing like that except anymore? Oh, ah, well. Yeah. Well. So, let's get to uh, your topic here. I'm, you and I haven't had the chance to meet uh, along the Civil War pathways yet. Um, no. But your dust jacket tells me that you uh, have written for the journal, the Illinois State Historical Society, uh, Arkansas Historical Quarterly, Civil War History, and others. Uh, people... Articles like that don't pay well. Uh, uh, no. what, 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 what's the day job? Um, uh, I was a museum consultant for a long time, and um, I trained as a museum curator at uh, Southern Illinois University and um, worked as a curator in a number of museums and um, set off for myself, and uh, now I lecture and write. Uh, that's... Did you ever have a chance to uh, uh, visit the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana? No, I didn't know there was one. Uh, alas, uh, and and there is isn't any more. That was I okay. guess from ten years there, nine years actually. Uh, okay. In the nineties, it was uh, at in its heyday a, a great museum. It was the the best museum dedicated to the life and times of Abraham Lincoln. Huh. Uh, it predated certainly the it, it, it was started in 1928, so it was long before the museum in Springfield got started. Yeah. But unfortunately, the Lincoln Financial Group uh, pulled up stakes and moved out east, and when they left, they lost interest in the museum, which they closed in 2008. So it's it's no longer there. That's a shame. Mm. It, it, it truly is. So, uh, But you're, you uh, worked, I uh, said, at Southern Illinois, uh, University, the home of uh, uh, the great John Y. Simon. Uh, did you yes, overlap with him? he was my thesis advisor. Oh, wonderful! He he was a, a good friend of mine and uh, sorely missed. Uh, he, yes, yes. He, he was uh, longtime listeners to this show will remember he was on. Uh, he was a guest, I think, the first year we did the show, two thousand four, and if pressed, uh, I will still say he was my favorite. <laughs> a single interview, uh, partly because I could ask him one question and then just sort of put the phone down and you know go scramble some eggs or something while yeah. he went off on a tear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was quite a character. <laughs> he was very, very funny, very knowledgeable about yeah. the Civil War. And he told a great yarn. He, he, 
knew how to tell a story. He really, really did. Well, he is is sadly missed. Uh, yeah. But so uh, while you, was it while you were at uh, SIU that you got interested in the Fifth Illinois Cavalry? How how did you come by this particular regiment uh, to write about? Um. Well, actually, I have my bachelor's from Temple University in archaeology, and I um, was accepted in the anthropology department at SIU, and I I really don't know what happened, but I lost interest (laughs) in archaeology, and um, I wasn't able to do the research that I wanted, and I did want to go into the museum field. Um, and the department wasn't offering. They, they, they really frowned upon that. They wanted field people. Yeah. And um, I decided to transfer to the history department. They accepted me with open arms, and, and um, I was doing my internship through the history department at the University Museum. And they had the uh, Ben Wiley um, manuscript collection that had been sitting there for a number of years and had not been indexed or um, even read. Um, and that was my project to to, to catalog um, and research Ben Wiley, who was the lieutenant colonel of the Fifth Illinois. Um, and I ended up doing my thesis on Ben Wiley um, and just got interested in the regiment because there wasn't anything written about these men. I had a very difficult time finding information, and the information that I did find was scanty and sometimes wrong, Um, and I just thought they deserved more mention in the historical record. The uh, a lot of regiments commissioned their own regimental histories at some point when they were uh, veterans. Did the uh, did the Fifth Illinois ever the Fifth Illinois Cavalry ever produce a regimental history of their own? No. So that's another source that was not there for you right. to use. Right. Hmm. So, uh, well, th- this is an interesting era. Uh, well, well, what you're doing, I, I'd say, I've, I found very congenial, really touched uh, my interest, uh, because uh, I would certainly agree that what the ordinary soldiers did doesn't always get uh, as much written about it as it might, in part because of the difficulty in finding sources. Right. So w- w- once you resolved on writing something about the 5th Illinois, how did you go about finding out about these ordinary soldiers? Um, manuscript collections. I scoured every archive that I could find uh, looking for information on these men and found that SIU, um, Southern Illinois University, had not only the Ben Wiley collection but the John Mann collection, and he was the regimental commissary. Um, and also second lieutenant of Company K, and the um, Abraham, what is now the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library, also had um, at least a half dozen manuscript collections. And then from there, it it I ordered the regimental records from the National Archives, 
and what they have. The state archives got that on microfilm, um, and basically used whatever manuscript I could find for men that served with the Fifth Illinois. So I went with primary sources more than I did secondary sources because written histories, a lot of those Civil War histories did not rely on primary sources, and these men were there, and they know better than anybody what happened. Well, certainly that that is... The essence of what what historians do is try to get back to the unmediated original sources whenever we right. can. Well, let's talk about the the origins of of the regiment, how these men came to join. Your first chapter, you talk about recruitment. Um, first of all, just just to set the stage, mm-hmm. uh, what what does a cavalry regiment look like? I would guess every listener to this program with Few exceptions could tell you about the ten companies of an infantry regiment, mm-hmm. uh, but cavalry is organized a little bit differently. How, what, what is a cavalry regiment? Uh, ten to twelve regiments. Uh, I'm sorry, ten to twelve companies. Of uh, the companies range between um, ninety and a hundred men. Um, it, it pretty much organized along uh, the, a regular regiment. Um, the only difference is that they're mounted. And these guys were self-mounted. Um, they brought their own uh, um, horses to the regiment, and for that, the government compensated them um, twelve dollars a month. So they had their own their own horses. So did they know how to ride for the most part? No, no. Well, I'm sure they knew how to ride, but a lot of them had never had experiences with horses before. So you have accounts where the men would get their saddles and they didn't know how to put them on. Um, they 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 were riding backwards. They didn't know how to get on a horse. Uh, I mean, you think of rural Illinois and you think farmland, but not everybody was a farmer. Um, and, and not everybody really knew how to ride a horse. But, yeah, they, they, they came in as, as a cavalry, but they weren't prepared for it. So the uh, so they brought horses, but not horses that they were familiar with. That, that's uh, sort of an Each amusing. Each company picture. was different. Each company came mm-hmm. in independently. Um, so it, it, you would have um, maybe one or two counties or towns that would organize a company, and then um, travel to Camp Butler, and there they would decide what regiment they wanted to enter. Um, some came with their horses. Some purchased horses when they got there, when they decided that they wanted to be cavalry. So th- this is uh, strikingly different from uh, today's military, the idea that you would show up and, uh, hey, I brought my own tank. I want to be in the armor. That's right. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you wouldn't really do that. But the point that these companies were self-organized and came from different counties uh, brings us to one of the key points of your book and uh, we're going to take a short break and come back and talk about that the idea that these companies were very different one from another in a lot of ways yeah. uh, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that and how it affected 
the uh, Civil War career of the 5th Illinois Cavalry. We're talking today with the author of The Prairie Boys Go to War, 5th Illinois Cavalry, 1861-1865. She is Rhonda Cole. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Rhonda Cole today about the 5th Illinois Cavalry. They're the subject of her book, The Prairie Boys Go to War, published by Southern Illinois University Press. And we talked in our first segment a little bit about the uh, recruitment of the regiment, uh, independent companies organizing themselves, bringing their own horses in many cases to various, uh, uh, to, to the rendezvous camp where the different, uh, companies come together. Uh, but Rhonda, you point out that these companies are, are separately organized in different places throughout, uh, Illinois. And Illinois is not politically homogenous in 1861. And that gets reflected in the the companies. Could you talk about that? Um, Illinois. I don't see how I can explain it. Illinois reflected the country at large, I believe. The population did, where you have a mixture of north and south. The northern part of Illinois which would be above what is now I-70, was populated with northern-born, eastern immigrants who, who traveled to Illinois to, to settle in Chicago or, or um, to create small towns. These people were um, educated. They had... Uh, a better financial base, and most of them were against slavery. The southern part of the state was populated with people whose families originated in the Carolinas, Kentucky, Tennessee. They had um, a, a southern belief system. Um, in the inequality of um, African Americans, uh, they believed in slavery, though they did not want it in their state. Um, they had less education than the northern born, and their finances were not as secure 
Um, you do have, by 1860, I'd say by 1850, a number of northern-borns moving south into southern Illinois. These people bring the Republican Party. They bring their entrepreneurship, um, their business owners, politicians, um, and, and they settle and they pretty much change the character of Southern Illinois. But they never become dominant. Even to this day, they're not dominant. Um, and in this way, it, it did reflect the two different beliefs. Illinois reflected the two different belief systems that were functioning in the United States prior to the Civil War or in the antebellum period. And it's reflected the, uh, in the regiment. I'm sorry, it, it is reflected in the regiment. So the the southern part, uh, which then and, and to this day is sometimes referred to as Egypt, uh, near right. near Cairo, Illinois, uh, is did that supply? If the people there believed in uh, inequality and slavery, although they didn't want it amongst them, uh, then did they also supply volunteers for the Union cause? Yes, um, they believed in the Union. These men, and, and I, I found this absolutely fascinating with these men, their fathers and grandfathers fought in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. They were pro-Union. They wanted the Union the way it was. Um, leave slavery alone. Um, leave the South alone. Um, but maintain the Union. And it's for this reason that you have a large number of um, southern born in in the regiment so so you get these two kinds of companies coming together men recruited from the central counties who tend to be uh, anti-slavery or at least uh, not pro-slavery uh, some would be republicans some might even be outright abolitionists and then you've yes. got the people coming from from Cairo from the no, uh, not Egypt. that far south, actually. Not that far south, okay. No, um, actually the, the deep Egyptian counties um, never supplied men to the 5th Illinois. What you get is more of a, um, along the northern edge of Egypt with the counties of Washington and Wayne and Randolph um, and Edwards. Um, those are the, the counties that are supplying men to the 5th Illinois, um, and then right above Egypt in, in central Illinois is where you get the largest number of men entering the regiment. So they're right on, on the border. You don't have regiments from the Chicago or companies from the Chicago area? No, no. So it's, this is all central, central south Illinois. Yes. So, so now this might not matter so much uh, in a unit that people disagree except that they get to choose their own officers. They have to vote on this. Uh, How do they resolve that? The main officers, the, the colonel, lieutenant colonel, and the majors are chosen by the governor. 
he is the one that um, gives commissions, and it's usually based on political patronage. And Richard Yates was a Republican, and he was known for his attempt to republicanize the Army. So um, when the 5th was organized, he chose all Republican officers except for one man, and that would have been um, Major Abel Selly, who um, was a Democrat, but he had tight economic connections with people who owned the Illinois Central Railroad, um, and for that he was given the major ship. I think he's second major. Yeah, he's second major of the regiment. The company officers are chosen by the men at the beginning. Um, they are allowed to, to vote for their captain and their lieutenants, sergeant, and corporals. Um, then the colonel has to approve of that election, and that gets sent off to Governor Yates, who then either approves or disapproves it. So they may have voted for their own leadership, but it still had to pass muster with a Republican governor. So you have now a regiment with a, a mixed political sentiment about yes. about the war and about slavery in particular. Yes. Uh, and then they go off to fight. They go off. Uh, uh, where did the regiment serve initially in 1862? Uh, in 62, they were serving with um, uh, Frederick Steele in uh, southeast Missouri and then northern Arkansas. And did they see much combat in that uh, in that role? Oh, not really. Um, they were mostly guarding um, supply lines coming in from um, St. Louis uh, that would trickle down and, and feed um, steel, and then um, Ryan Curtis's Army of the Southwest. So there wasn't much. They did a lot of. Um, Fighting with with guerrillas, um, and I know people don't like to use that term for southern fighters in Arkansas and Missouri, but these men labeled them as guerrillas, and and if they believed they were guerrillas, then I, I should honor that definition for them. These were unconventional fighters. They did belong to an organization, but they were not connected with a particular army. So it was irregular warfare in, in southeast Missouri, um, northern Arkansas. And then when um, the 5th became involved or connected with Samuel Curtis's Army of the Southwest, and the 5th became part of um, the troops that captured Helena in July 1862, um, they became an occupying force, and that is when they dealt for almost a year with uh, bushwhackers, guerrillas, so they're, fighters. <laughs> their, their experience is really something because if, if you have a regiment... I mean, when people think of regiments in the army, the first 
thing that comes to mind for a lot of people is the Army of the Potomac or the Army of right. Northern Virginia in, in the East. And there, because the regiments are raised from within a given state, we tend to think of them as, as relatively homogenous in their political views. They're all from Maine or they're all from New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, but here we have an example where the men really are divided in what they think the war is about. And they're not put in a, a situation where they're simply waiting in camp and then going out to fight the enemy's main army. They're constantly engaged, as you say, with this low-intensity warfare, with, with guerrillas, with uh, right. bushwhackers, with you know civilians who take up arms. And they're constantly going out and dealing with the property of the enemy, uh, taking... Yeah. Uh, foodstuffs and and especially they 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 immediately begin to encounter slaves and yes it's not just a hypothetical question anymore about what do you think of slavery the purpose of the war now they've got to face it on the ground what do you do with these individuals and yes. how did that work out I don't have any primary sources for soldiers who were anti-black. Most of the manuscript collections that I worked with, the men were northern-born or um, had a higher educational level than the Egyptian um, population. So what they, what they see the war as, they see the war, everybody in that regiment saw the war as a war for the Union. There was no argument about that at the beginning of the war. It changed um, in late 1862 with the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And at that point, the 5th Illinois had been involved with freeing African Americans from slavery for at least six months. And they began to respect the freedmen, and the slaves as well, as their source of information, as an aid to capture bushwhackers and guerrillas. And you, you see, and, and I was really surprised about this, you see a change in, in their attitudes where they actually begin to call these men friends. And they hold the opinion of these men higher than the southern population of Arkansas, Missouri. And they state that to the residents of Arkansas, Missouri. And and the the white population is very surprised. <laughs> very surprised that a slave's opinion would be held above their own. You have some interesting stories in here of attempts by uh, civilians to retrieve runaway slaves yeah. from the yeah. camp of the 5th Illinois, and yeah. these these attempts are not, not very successful. No, no. They do not want to return these men um, or, 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 or women or children back to the slave owners. They employ them. They employ them as cooks, as laundresses, um, and they want to protect them. Now, the uh, I started out saying at the very beginning uh, introduction that uh, life in a cavalry regiment was no joke, and certainly this low-level warfare is is an unpleasant thing to engage in and dangerous. Yes. But 
uh, I was struck by how much this regiment suffered from disease over its career, and it uh, its time in 1862-63 and garrison duty, uh, they really uh, they did not adapt well to the conditions. No, um, I, I think that's true with a lot of the regiments, especially from the Midwest. I mean, these are farm boys; they're not used to the diseases. Um, they had a very long um, encampment at Camp Butler, where, they're, they're, um, where they were exposed to measles and mumps and chickenpox. But those weren't the diseases that really affected them. It, these these were diseases that um, spread through poor sanitation, and it did not matter the educational level of the officer. I mean, Ben Wiley was in charge, and and so was Colonel Hall Wilson um, in charge at Helena, and they didn't understand the connection between sanitation and disease. Um, So you get camps that are located next to the latrine, which is located next to the water source. Um, and there are 40,000 soldiers at Helena. So every regiment is like that. And there's dead animals everywhere. There's the waste of the animals everywhere. There are the rats that feed on the waste and the dead animals. There's mosquitoes. <laughs> they don't understand that. They knew that if you lived next to a swamp, you got sick. But they thought it was due to decomposing plant materials, that when it decomposed, it sent off a noxious gas. And when you breathed that in, that caused disease. They didn't understand that mosquitoes actually bore a parasite that entered your system and made you sick. Um, and it was all these factors, the, the, the not understanding germ theory, which had not been discovered yet. Um, so you really can't blame it on the educational level of anybody. It's just that they didn't know better. Well, the, the disease certainly was the main killer, but the regiment did have some uh, combat, one action in particular that I want to talk about. We're going to take okay. another short break, and we'll come okay. right back and discuss that. Okay. Uh, we're talking today with Rhonda Cole. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market step up to the microphone view the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv america's next great star is waiting to be discovered 
Step Up to the Microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Rhonda Cole. She's the author of The Prairie Boys Go to War, the 5th Illinois Cavalry, 1861 to 1865. We've been talking about the career of this regiment, raised in Illinois among northern uh, among the central counties of Illinois with people with northern and southern backgrounds uh, and divergent opinions about the war which in turn affect the cohesion of the regiment as it goes through its career if the regiment had a a moment of uh, uh martial glory that would certainly be in 1863 when it joined uh, Grant's forces outside of Vicksburg and participated in uh, some of the actions around there keeping uh, keeping Joe Johnston from relieving Vicksburg. Uh, yeah. Tell us, uh, Rhonda, if you could give us a little background on the, the action at uh, Mechanicsville and what, what the regiment did there. Um, the idea was, this was the second or third expedition to Mechanicsburg. Uh, Grant wanted um, a unit to go to the Waste Bluff Bridge, which was the main railroad bridge for the Mississippi Central Railroad um, above right. Canton, and they, he wanted that railroad destroyed so supplies and, and men could not be moved into Mississippi with any ease. Um, earlier expeditions under Frank P. Blair failed, uh, and with his new influx of cavalry that came in June of 1863, he wanted to try again. Um, and he decided to, to send up um, a cavalry brigade commanded by Ben Wiley, who was lieutenant colonel of the 5th at the time, um, with a number of infantry divisions, uh, one under... Kimball, I think they both went up by boat. Kimball and, um, oh, I can't remember who the other. Uh. Two infantry divisions <laughs> made it to Mechanicsburg first. Um, and they were designed to um, push whatever uh, Confederate troops were there out of the way so the cavalry could have an easy... Avenue to Canton and destroy the Waste Bluff Bridge. Unfortunately, it didn't happen as they had planned. Um, uh, the the infantry initially pushed back um, Confederate cavalry. Uh, the Wiley arrived on the afternoon of June fourth in time to oh, what would be the word for it? Um, basically trash what was left of the Confederate cavalry that was there. Um, they bore down on uh, uh, Nelson's Georgia cavalry, um, taken a number of men prisoners, 
the fifth lose a few men. Um, and this is their first battle that they can actually be proud of. Well, Unfortunately, they, they, yes. with reinforcements coming in, with, with additional reinforcement, infantry reinforcements for the Confederates coming in, they are unable to get to Canton and destroy the bridge. So they, they don't succeed in that part of the mission, but they do overrun the, the Confederate cavalry rear guard and they, uh, they, they have, as you say, a very successful action there. Yes. Uh, uh fighting, uh, you know, on George horseback. Nel- I believe uh, it's George Nelson's Georgia cavalry. That's right. Yeah. And the, uh, uh, the, there are some interesting side elements there. Uh, you describe how, uh, the, the major commanding the battalion in the lead, uh, his horse conveniently stumbles and he gets left behind and doesn't have to fight in the front rank. I don't uh, think it was a convenient stumble. I, okay. I really don't. Um, mm-hmm. I think those charges were brought on politically to mm-hmm. get rid of Apperson, Thomas Apperson, um, so other men could could rise in rank. Um, I, I have differing accounts where John Mann says that Apperson did not stumble and that he was trying to save himself um, and other accounts that say yes his horse stumbled and he, he couldn't get the momentum back up in order to follow his troops um, whatever the real story is it ended in Thomas Apperson's resignation because charges were brought against him um, by a number of the Democrats in the in the regiment he Thomas Apperson was Republican um, to court-martial him for cowardice. So he, he his career did not survive the... Uh, no, no. Neither uh, did Ben Wiley's. Uh, ben Wiley had been um, very ill in the fall of 1862 while at Helena. Um, he uh, also had learned from his wife, Emily, that his two boys had contracted an eye disease um, and... Uh, What's called red eye, um, and one of them had gone blind, and his wife was in desperate need of assistance on what to do with the two boys, um, and he 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 resigned from the service. Unfortunately, the resignation was lost, um, and by January of 1863, he inquires about it. He finds out that there is no record of his resignation. He returns to the regiment. Um, he is court-martialed. They find him guilty. Um, the verdict is sent to the War Department, and Wiley believes that it will be overturned, um, basically because of his Republican standing. Um, unfortunately, when they come back from the Mechanicsburg expedition, um, Wiley learns that the verdict was upheld and that he he is dismissed from the service, um, and Thomas Apperson leaves as well. So now you've got the regiment in a vacuum. There is all the original Republican leaders are gone. Colonel Wilson had resigned due to poor health in February of 1863. Ben Wiley's gone. Thomas Apperson's gone. Um, basically all that's left are 
two majors who are Democrats. And this is when the infighting really kicks in. It, it becomes very nasty. Um, letters are written to um, Governor Yates. They're written to Illinois Adjutant General um, Fuller um, describing the patriotism of Republicans or the the unpatriotic behavior of Democrats, and it just gets nasty. And what happens is Governor Yates decides he doesn't want any of them um, running the regiment, that none of them are qualified. So he chooses John McConnell, who is a Republican, and uh, ex-major of the 3rd Illinois Cavalry, um, who is basically on sick leave. Uh, and he he does promote... A, Thomas Apperson to Lieutenant Colonel, but um, like I said, Tom resigns, um, and then Abel Selly is brought in as Lieutenant Colonel. Horace P. Mumford is brought in as third major. First major goes to James Farnan, I believe. Um, they no longer count on what the men want within the regiment. It is now based on seniority. When the companies were mustered in, um, who's ranking captain, the ranking captain becomes the major, and so on and so forth. So you get a, a regiment that is essentially being run by Democrats by the fall of 1863. And but you have this, a lot of Republicans in there as well. It, it becomes even more significant the following year when you have a presidential election. Yeah. Uh, uh, how did how did the regiment go through that period? Well, they weren't allowed to vote. Um, the Illinois General Assembly did not pass um, enfranchisement for the soldiers, so they weren't allowed to vote. They wanted Lincoln in there. They wanted Lincoln to remain president because they believed he was the only one that could complete the war and to complete the war with honor and to that, save the Union. When you say they were not allowed to vote, meaning they could not vote absentee ballots, if for some reason they were home, they could vote. Yes, that, that's, yes that's it, yes. But, but they couldn't. And some states did make arrangements to allow the soldiers to vote in the field. It, it strikes right. us today as... Bizarre that the the very people risking their lives for the country were denied the right to vote yeah. because they couldn't because they were busy serving at the front. Yeah. Uh, but that's how it was done then. Yeah. So they they uh, the, the men wanted uh, as you say Lincoln back in. I I was struck by that also because I read a book <coughs> excuse me not too long ago that repeated something you see in a lot of. Uh, sort of elementary accounts about how the soldiers loved McClellan, so people worried, uh, Lincoln worried that McClellan would get the soldier vote in 1864. Well, the only soldiers who loved McClellan were the ones who served under him in uh, in the Army of the Potomac, and you have some letters quoted here of uh, Union soldiers with no use at all for George McClellan. No, they um, had none. They did not like him. They had served under Grant and Sherman, and they knew how the war had to be fought, and it was not sitting around waiting for something to happen. It was to get out there, to to confront the enemy, to push the enemy, and to defeat the enemy. 
and and they saw McClellan as a lover of the South, and they I don't believe any of them would have voted for McClellan. I even have one soldier, William Skiles, who tried to talk his father into not voting for McClellan because a vote for McClellan was a vote for the South. He started the war as an anti-black, southern-born Egyptian. He ended up as an abolitionist, and he tells his parents he's an abolitionist. And to not vote for McClellan, but to vote for Lincoln, um, a, a vote for Lincoln would end the war, and... And I hate to say this on radio, but they could deal with the freedmen after the war. They didn't want to move north anyway. They would push them back south, and there would not be any problem with racial interaction. Well, that's one of the the key points, and unfortunately we are out of time and and can't go into detail on it. Uh, But one of the key points is that the... uh, 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 Union soldiers were were increasingly radicalized by their encounters with uh, with slaves, and and they became anti-slavery and even outright abolitionists, uh, contrary to what they thought at the start of the war. But it didn't make them uh, necessarily uh, interested in in a integrated society. Oh and, no, none and, of and them it, wanted integration. Yeah, it, it's hard for sometimes for modern uh, people discussing this topic to recognize that these are very different issues, yeah. and that uh, they could be racist and anti-slavery, uh, which many of them were. Mm-hmm. But but it does it, it's well, it's a complex story. It's one worth exploring, and it's one that you uh, shed a lot of light on in this book. Yeah. Unfortunately, as I said, we are out of time to talk about it further. But listeners will want we to go have out. one minute. Do we have one minute? I I do want to say that. Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay, even during the war, the anti-black laws of Illinois were, were, were prosecuted. Uh, Wiley, when he resigned, brought African Americans into Illinois to work on his farm because he could not get white laborers. And he, he and a number of other men were arrested. And and um, charged with violating the black laws. So even though the war was being fought, these black laws were still on the books and they were enforced. So well, another it, contradiction. It, it complicates it. the idea of you know good north, bad south, or free yeah. north, slave south are, are far too simple and, and leave out all these incredible complications. Yes, there's well, more to book- the war than the military. There's there's so many intricate parts to the Civil War. That need to be explored. That is certainly the case, and and your book, as I'd say, shows that interaction between the political and the military. It's a fascinating regimental history and and worth looking at for anyone who wants to explore those differences. So once again, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Jerry. It was a pleasure being here. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.